The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Optimizing NTRK Fusion Testing and TRK Inhibition in Thyroid Cancer, Team-Based Approaches for Enhanced Outcomes. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash QKA860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and welcome to Optimizing NTRAC Fusion Testing and Track Inhibition in Thyroid Cancer, Team-Based Approaches for Enhanced Outcomes. I'm Dr. Marcia Bros, an oncologist from the Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Jefferson Health in Philadelphia. I'm pleased to welcome my colleagues, Dr. Jennifer Morissette, a molecular expert from the University of Pennsylvania, and Dr. Steven Nagelberg, an endocrinologist also from Jefferson Health in Philadelphia. Today, we are going to discuss team-based management of thyroid cancer with a focus on the transition from endocrinology to oncology and how the management team can leverage a modern understanding of cancer biology and gene fusions to inform the selection of highly active therapy. During this program, we will periodically share several resources summarizing take-homes from our discussion. We'll also provide useful resources for patient management. So please take a moment to download these practice aids before we get started. Let's begin. So let's take our baseline case. Margaret, a 46-year-old female, presented with a painless palpable mass on her neck. Her TSH and free T4 blood tests were within normal limits. Ultrasound findings showed a 2-centimeter solid mass occupying the right thyroid lobe and several suspicious lymph nodes. Fine needle aspiration of the mass was cytologically consistent with papillary thyroid carcinoma. She underwent total thyroidectomy and then was treated with radioactive iodine, 150 millicuries. Whole body scan showed uptake in only the neck, consistent with thyroid remnant. So, Stephen, how would you approach this patient, and what are your first considerations? So, as you know, Marcia, the endocrinologist is usually on the forefront of managing patients with differentiated thyroid cancer. Surgery remains the first step in the treatment of differentiated thyroid cancer, Uh, It's uh, both a diagnostic and therapeutic tool, obviously. We get histology. We know the extent of of the disease. The next step after surgery is to make a decision whether or not remnant ablation is necessary or adjuvant therapy with radioactive iodine is necessary. Radioactive iodine is a very safe procedure. It's done specifically for thyroid cancer because thyroid tissue is the only tissue in our bodies that take up iodine. Uh, Radioactive iodine is administered orally, usually in a nuclear medicine department, and absorbs into all remaining thyroid tissue, whether it be pathologic or uh, normal tissue that's left behind from surgery. But one of the big points of this presentation that we'll be discussing later on is that in some cases of well-differentiated thyroid cancer, cells lose the ability to concentrate iodine, and that patient becomes what we term radioiodine refractory, where treatment with radioactive iodine is no longer effective. Thanks, Stephen. So what are the criteria for RAI refractory status? Well, when we were doing the clinical trials, we had to come up with criteria that both endocrinologists and oncologists could apply uniformly and could agree upon. And for that reason, the clinical trials developed this definition, that a patient was REI refractory either because, number one, they had no radioactive iodine uptake at the known sites of metastatic disease on a diagnostic or whole body scan, 
Number two, they had progression of disease within one year after radioactive iodine therapy, despite having confirmed uptake. Or three, that they had progression of disease despite a cumulative dose of greater than 600 millicuries. So Stephen, what do you think about these criteria? And is there anything we really need to know, especially knowing that we have both endocrinologists and oncologists that are going to try to coordinate our care around some of these uh, definitions? Yes, Marcia, these are relatively straightforward. The American Thyroid Association guidelines that were published uh, five or six years ago also had uh, the criteria for what they considered radioactive iodine refractory patients, and they're similar. Knowing that thyroid tissue uh, and metastatic thyroid cancer can either be initially radioactive iodine resistant or as time progressive metastatic as time progresses metastatic disease may become radioactive iodine refractory so it can occur over time and there are some cases that have multiple metastatic lesions whereas some lesions may take up iodine and some lesions don't those patients should also be considered radioactive iodine refractory and then finally uh, as you mentioned some cases actually do take up radioactive iodine, but they don't respond therapeutically. And once you reach about 600 millicuries of total dose I-131, where bone marrow suppression becomes a concern, then those patients should not receive additional radioactive iodine. It just becomes too toxic. All right, so then let's go on with our case, shall we? At six months, however, Margaret's serum thyroglobulin levels remained over 5 nanograms per millimeter and, and milliliter, and at 12 months, her thyroglobulin had increased to 12 nanograms per milliliter. On CT scan, several lung nodules were noted bilaterally, with two largest ones measuring 8 millimeters and 10 millimeters. She undergoes a multidisciplinary evaluation, which included input from endocrinology, nuclear medicine, and oncology. A repeat radioactive iodine scan was negative for uptake in the, neg in the neck and lungs, and she was referred to oncology. Does this sound consistent with what you would do, Stephen, in your practice? Yes. I follow my patients at uh, typically 6 to 12-month intervals. We follow serum thyroglobulin. We do neck ultrasounds. I'm fortunate to be trained and uh, able to do neck ultrasound surveillance uh, in the office at the time of the patient visit. And if thyroglobulin levels are increasing, the first places we are looking are either in the neck or, or the lungs. So if I don't see anything in the neck, then the next step will be a CT of the chest. And this is a uh, not atypical presentation that you just presented. So as we discussed earlier on, the first mode of therapy for managing patients with differentiated thyroid cancer are of course timely surgical resection uh, getting a good histologic uh, identification of the subtype of cancer and also the extent of the cancer, whether there's uh, extension through the thyroid capsule into neck lymph nodes and other local regional disease. We then follow the patient, as I said, uh, at uh, 6 to 12-month intervals typically depending on the risk or the suspicion for their uh, likelihood of recurrent disease, we will try to get the TSH level either absolutely suppressed in, in high-risk patients or mildly suppressed uh, in intermediate-risk patients. 
So once we have those patients, what do you do? So I know that we sometimes have patients who have metastatic disease and it's not radioactive iodine avid and it's refractory. Do you then send them right away? What's your um, referral then for, for bringing in the oncologist? You know, in prior years, we had limited uh, systemic therapies available, so, but things have changed. And with your expertise and others, we now have options for systemic therapy, which have proven to be very useful. So at this point in time, uh, once we uh, have a patient with metastatic disease or locally invasive disease that's not responding to radioactive iodine, then the next step indeed is to refer to uh, medical oncology. Great, and that's why it's so great working with you. One of the things that's important for me is as an oncologist that I get these patients even if they don't seem to need to have systemic therapy immediately. As you've pointed out before, this isn't necessarily an emergency situation. There can be sort of an orderly transition and not really a transition as much as an inclusion of oncology because of course, you'll continue to follow the patients at this stage as well. Um, but for an oncologist, having some lead time before I have to start therapy gives me some good time to do some education with the patient, prepare them mentally and also physically so that they're really as ready um, as possible to get a good outcome once they do need systemic therapy. So that, that's been a really nice partnership. And so that's where the, I guess, this number five comes in. So once RAI refractory um, status has been identified, sometime soon after that, not too long, I would hope, they would include, uh, an endocrinologist would include an oncologist, especially if there are no more local options. So then we can go a little bit to what are we going to do with these patients? So the most important thing everybody needs to know is that thyroid cancer has many kinase um, inhibitor mutation or kinase mutations, and therefore it is really amenable to kinase inhibitors. And some of the most common ones are here, and the ones that we can target now are actually uh, circled on this slide. BRAF, of course, is the most prominent one, incurring in almost 50% of our papillary thyroid cancers. We can also get RET-PTC fusions and NTRAC fusions in a higher number, anywhere from 5 to 20%, and that's actually higher if we have a patient who's an adolescent, more common, especially in those teenagers that I have in my clinic. And so now what uh, NCCN guidelines would say is at this point, you really want to make sure that you do testing for these patients as well for genetic changes, as well as um, making sure that you when you do the testing, that you have the right kind of testing. And so that's why it's really great to have Jennifer Morissette on this call because Jennifer can introduce us a little bit to kind of what we need to know about genetic and genomic testing. Thank you, Marsha. Um, one of the most important things when you're thinking about uh, detecting genomic changes is to, to consider broad genomic profiling. And next generation sequencing is a technology that allows to, uh, the laboratory to detect multiple different types of mutations in a patient's tumor. And these types of mutations include uh, single nucleotide variants, such as BRAF V600E, small insertions or deletions, such as uh, RET mutations, but caused by a deletion with an insertion of uh, several uh, nucleotides, chromosome rearrangements, such as ETV6 and TRAC3, copy number changes, 
such as RET amplifications, genome-wide changes like MSI, high tumors, or high tumor mutational burden. And what's important to consider is that it really depends upon the panel design and how the sample is prepared and the bioinformatic pipelines as to how well these different types of mutations can be detected in the patient sample. So gene fusions are very common in papillary thyroid cancer. And it's important to test for gene fusions, and this should be part of standard clinical practice because oncogenes can rearrange with multiple partners. And as you can see in this figure, the thyroid cancers identify multiple different fusion genes uh, within these tumors. So in addition to the expected fusions, such as RET fusions and NTRAC 1, 2, and 3 fusions, there are other potentially targetable fusions that have been identified. I guess the most important thing also for people to understand, for those of us who've been working to develop targeted therapy, is that many times these rearrangements are actually driving both the development and progression of cancer. In the case of track fusions, however, it's an interesting scenario because we know that the point mutations don't drive cancer, but the track fusions do. That's why we always focus on track fusion cancers because they're the ones that we actually target. Um, is the, are these the only ways, are panels the only ways to actually detect that or are there other ways? There are actually several ways to be able to detect oncogenic fusions, particularly in NTRAC and RET. Um, we can use uh, FISH, fluorescence in situ hybridization, and this can uh, identify rearrangements but won't identify a partner. Um, there's RT-PCR looking for very specific rearrangements. Um, and in some cases, you can use immunohistochemistry to identify changes. And both RNA or DNA can be used as a substrate, but there are different uh, outcomes when you identify mutations in those scenarios. So when you think about gene fusions, um, you can detect them using DNA sequencing, and this can detect mutations as well as some fusions, or RNA sequencing. And RNA sequencing is really the best way to detect gene fusions. And that's because when you think about the structure of DNA and a, and a DNA rearrangement, what occurs is there are breaks that occur within the two genes and actually within the introns of the genes. And if you recall, DNA goes to RNA goes to protein, and the difference between DNA and RNA is that splicing occurs. And by utilizing RNA as a substrate, you can look at exon to exon fusions between the two genes and don't have to worry about those large complex introns. And so typically when we do uh, genomic sequencing, we use both DNA and RNA um, because we want to be able to catch both point mutations like BRAF E600E as well as rearrangements such as NTRAC. There's, there's some very uh, complicated uh, interpretations when it comes to genomic findings. And this is an a example from a patient that we sequenced. And you can see that there's a DNA sequencing result and an RNA sequencing result. And the DNA uh, sequencing result actually did not identify a um, targetable mutation, but it did identify a disease-associated mutation in RB1. However, the RNA fusion result identified an ETV6 NTRAC3. And even 
though the same patient is being sequenced, using two different modalities can increase the likelihood of being able to detect these fusion genes. And it's very important to remember that some next-generation sequencing testing differs between labs as to what types of mutations are reported. So choosing the right test can be difficult, but is essential for identification of the different types of driver genes in your patients. And this is just an example to show why it's so important to be able to identify um, fusions using um, RNA as opposed to DNA. And this is the intron in NTRAC3, which is typically interrupted by a fusion. And those teeny little bars that are circled in red, those are the exons. And that huge intervening space, which is about 100 kilobase, is the intron. And the break can take place any place in that intron. So if you perform a sequencing test and the no driver gene is detected by DNA sequencing, and RNA is not available, you should consider alternative methods for fusion detection, such as immunohistochemistry or FISH. And there are multiple different methods for detection of tract fusions, and these include immunohistochemistry, FISH, and next-generation sequencing. And with immunohistochemistry, one of the advantages is this is a great screening tool because um, you can identify if there's tract overexpression and it's good for following a patient with a known track rearranged tumor. But the problems are that the fusion partner is unknown, you can have false positives and negatives, and it's not very well validated. With FISH, you can get rapid results. Um, in our laboratory with FFPE tissue, we can turn this around in overnight for fresh tissue in four hours. So you can get very rapid results, but the problem is, is, again, the fusion partner is unknown, and there is a potential for false positives or negatives, and especially if there are atypical patterns. So if you get a report with an atypical pattern and your patient doesn't respond, it's possible that it was a false positive by FISH. NGS, on the other hand, will give you comprehensive genomic testing. You'll be able to identify the fusion partner and the position for where the breaks are. And you'll be able to potentially detect potential resistance variants in the tumor. Of course, there's longer wait times. It may cost more, although um, uh, more insurance and Medicare is covering this. And older samples may have poor quality nucleic acid. And this can be a real problem when it comes to identifying fusions using RNA, because RNA is very labile. Right. So I've had patients, for instance, that I sent off a tumor that was two years old, for instance, and I got back that they were not able to do the assay. So we really, in those cases, need to consider the age of the sample that we're, we're going to be ana uh, analyzing. And I, the, the last point I wanted to make was that not all NTRAC variants that are reported are actually targetable. And so when you have a fusion for, let's say, ETV6 NTRAC3, that would be consistent with being a targetable gene rearrangement. However, in the, in the panel to the right, you can see that there's an NTRAC2 variant of uncertain significance. And this is a single nucleotide variant that has not been characterized. So that's not considered a potential target. But what you'll notice is that there is a BRAF mutation that had been detected in this uh, individual. So looking for the driver mutation is important. 
let's now look again at the patient that we were talking about. We remember we left her at the point where she had had a chest CT, it had lung nodules at 12 months post-radioactive iodine, and she was followed by both the endocrinologist and the oncologist with active surveillance for another two years. And then at that time, one of the nodules had grown to two centimeters. Meanwhile, the next generation sequencing on this patient had revealed an NTRAC1 fusion. So what is the best approach for Margaret? Do we use standard um, multikinase lenvatinib or serafinib, or do we do a select TRAC inhibitor? So then that brings us to the TRAC inhibitors. Now the current status of selective agents is that there are two FDA-approved agents, liratractinib and entractinib, and two that are currently in development, ripotractinib and selatractinib. The liratractinib is approved for adult and pediatric t- uh, patients with tumors that have an NTRAC fusion um, that do not have an acquired resistance mutation and have no satisfactory alternative treatments. Entractinib is similarly approved, but this case is for all patients 12 years and older. So as I mentioned, these are highly selective agents. They really just inhibit TRAC and not other related uh, closely related kinases, they bind and track A, B, and C very closely and do a very good job at shutting down the activity. They also have promising tolerability profiles, and there are even liquid formulations for our pediatric patients. So the data and experience with liratractinib to date comes from three separate trials where the data has been pooled. The first was an adult phase one that was uh, in solid tumors. The second was a pediatric phase one, two in advanced solid tumors. And the last was an adult adolescent phase two in advanced solid tumors. And after the first few patients, as I said, that had point mutations in the phase one, patients with point mutations were excluded. So all of the rest of the data that I'll show you is from the track fusion patients only. And taken together, there were 244 patients with non-primary CNS track fusion cancers that were then treated with liratractinib. So what was interesting about this trial was that NTRAC fusions had been found in multiple different cancer types, and thyroid cancer was just one of many. However, it was fairly common and the third most common in, these, um, in this data set, and actually was the most common of the adult, um, of the adult cancers that harbored NTRAC fusions. 12% of the patients in this data set had thyroid cancer. Of valuable patients, 244 valuable patients, we had an overall response rate of 69%. And then as far as best response, we actually had 21%, which is a very high number, with complete responses. Now, for oncologists, pa- patients who have metastatic disease don't get complete responses. So this was really um, a, a jaw-dropping result. In addition, there were 5% uh, of patients with pathologic complete responses. Those were identified in, in patients who were mostly children who, following shrinkage of their tumor, then had a completion surgery and no pathologic evidence of disease was found. There were also a very large number of 43% of patients with partial responses. So what, at the end of the day, you have the vast majority of patients having a very good response to liratrectinib. This shows here the duration of responses, and you can see that on average they were out almost to three years as far as the median duration of response. Progression for free survival was over two years, and overall survival um, has been approximately, uh, uh, sorry, overall survival hasn't even been reached yet with a median follow-up of 32 months. This is the sort of one of the new ways, I guess, of looking at adverse events. And on the left, you see all the adverse events that were uh, found in these patients. But on the right, you can see the adverse events that are associated 
with larotrectinib. And what is really striking about this, uh, this graph or this, this um, diagram is that on the right, very, very few patients um, had either grade three or grade four, which are in the light blue or in the kind of maroon color. So the vast majority of these patients are having only grade one or grade two. So having a systemic therapy with incredibly well-tolerated systemic therapy and complete responses really was something we had never seen before. But what's even better is that many of these are, is that, are those duration of responses. Patients are, all of my thyroid cancer patients, including my first patient I put on this drug about six years ago, are still responding. So these are just the thyroid cancer um, patients that were pulled out of the data set. And you can see here that a good number of them had a complete response. In this case, 10% had a complete response. And then the rest, a large number of them had partial responses for a total overall response rate of 86% in papillary thyroid cancer. Now, in anaplastic thyroid cancer, you sometimes can see response and sometimes not. And it probably has to do with whether or not those anaplastic thyroid cancers have either acquired a resistant mutation in NTRAC or additional mutations that, res that result in resistance uh, to these therapies. So in anaplastic, I'm not so sure because many of those patients have progressed by two months that it would be my first go-to without maybe doing something in addition to the larotrectinib. But I think as far as papillary thyroid cancer, no one will disagree. This is definitely a home run as far as how well patients did. Entrectinib is similar, except that it's not quite as specific. It also targets ROS1 and ALK, and actually was developed as a ROS1 inhibitor for lung cancer. But like larotrectinib, it is a very good track A, B, and C inhibitor. And as such, has, since it has good activity, it also has good activity in um, patients with solid tumors, as well with uh, track fusion solid tumors, as well as patients who have thyroid cancer, um, with associated NTRAC fusion. So this is the data that we have. It's a 61% uh, overall response rate, not too different from larotrectinib. And actually what they pointed out in this study was that there was good activity regardless of whether the patient had metastasis to the, to the brain or not. And what was interesting about that is that that was subsequently shown to be true with larotrectinib as well. So now, in addition to the fact that these are efficacious and safe, they also have uh, brain penetration. And here we also show that, again, look at how few grade 3, um, and there were no grade 4, um, AEs in this study. So again, almost all grade 1 and 2. There's a little bit more of mucositis, and there's definitely a little bit more of bone marrow uh, changes that happen with entractinib. So we have a little bit more, um, we have to watch those a little bit more. Um, and they're a little bit more, uh, they require dose reductions a little bit more often than larotrectinib. And again, it's probably because it's not so selective for NTRAC. It has some other kinases um, that are also being inhibited, leading to a little bit of the off-target adverse events. But because of these phenomenal uh, data, NCCN guidelines recommend testing now for all tract fusions in differentiated anaplastic cancers. And we do this in advance of starting any systemic therapy. And so we'd like to, if we can, get an RNA-based next-generation sequencing to pick up all the point mutations as well as the, all of the fusions that we might see. And we do it for anaplastic thyroid as well. While this has a terrible um, prognosis, it may be that anything that we can throw at it that we know even has short activity um, may help, although there may be other things we're going to have to do in that case, as I said. 
And so then the NCCN guidelines also recommend NTRAC for certain patients with NTRAC fusion positive advanced and metastatic thyroid cancer. So how do we actually put all of this together knowing that there are obviously multi-kinase inhibitors that we use for differentiated thyroid cancer? And I guess this is really what I would consider one of my take-home slides, which is that I considered almost that there's a pre-first-line option for patients, either they have a TREC fusion or a RET fusion. I'll, we're not talking about RET fusion so much today, but I will point out that the same is true um, with the salpicatinib and pralcetinib data, that these really are a, higher, a much higher level of responses and longer duration of responses um, than when we had the multi-kinase inhibitors. And for that reason, in my current algorithm, I will treat with an NTRAC fusion inhibitor or a RET fusion inhibitor if the patient is eligible in the first-line setting. Many of these patients can go on for many years with minimal side effects and you know, maintain a very good quality of life, working full-time, etc. If they either don't have a gene fusion or they have failed those um, options, they are still eligible for either serafinib or linvatinib, both of which have been shown in phase three studies to be active in first and second line. These are both FDA approved agents and can be used. I say most people use linvatinib first because of the higher response rate and the rapid response rate and also an increased duration of progression-free survival. However, serafinib does have its uses. It has less hypertension. And so many times we might choose that in a patient who has um, already very difficult to control blood pressure or in a patient who might have uh, invasion through the trachea wall, for instance, because if you shrink the tumors too quickly, they're at a higher risk of having a fistula. So coming back to our baseline case, we had Margaret who was started on systemic therapy with larotrectinib 100 milligrams twice a day at two months. She had approximately 50% reduction in her tumor nodule diameters. She noted some weight gain, but was able to manage this with diet and exercise. This is one of the most common um, side effects that patients do note, but are able to manage. They just need to be warned that it's happening. And then at three years, she continues to maintain her response and is active with no limitations. As I said, all of my thyroid cancer patients continue to respond. So at three years, she has her response, she's active. So what does a good response look like for onlarotrectinib? Well, most often it can be 50% or greater, but many patients um, will have any sorts of response. 30% or greater is actually the rule, not the exception. Um, We do monitor patients for, as I said, weight gain just to warn them. And we just keep track of if there's anything else bothering them. But honestly, there's very, very little that they actually complain of. The only other one I'd say that can be actually dose limiting is sometimes they actually have some dizziness, and that is probably related to a CNS side effect. So we have to watch out if they're having problems with dizziness. Occasionally, if it's really unacceptable, we do have to sometimes dose reduce 25% in order to get that side effect to go away. Duration of treatment so far is unknown. People seem to do well for a very, very long time. And the timing of the response is rapid. There are patients who had their lungs 50% full of metastatic disease on oxygen in wheelchairs, looking like they were going to succumb to their disease in the following month. Within two weeks, they're off oxygen and out of the wheelchair. And actually at two months to six months, they end up with complete responses. So that's almost bringing us to the end of our program. I think it would be nice just to sort of wrap up from all three of our perspectives. So Stephen, do you want to start us off talking about what, you know, your take-home points are for our recommendations for our patients and our 
our, our oncologists and endocrinologists and others who might be listening today? Sure, Marcia, thank you. So the endocrinologist role uh, I see primarily is uh, being the spearhead role initially. Uh, typically, we are obviously involved not only in treatment, but of course, first uh, with the diagnosis of a patient with thyroid cancer. We then engage our surgical colleagues, see what we're dealing with, and then take over from there. So we usually will do the management and coordinate with our nuclear medicine colleagues to do radioactive iodine, either remnant ablation or adjuvant therapy if uh, there's more advanced disease. And then we will monitor the patients primarily in the office. And at some point, uh, if we deem them to develop radioiodine refractory disease and need systemic therapy, then it's obviously our obligation to refer them in a timely basis over to medical oncology, such as an expert uh, as you. Okay, great. And um, Jennifer, what do you think are the most important things for all of us to know about the pathology and the genetic testing? So one of the most important things to remember about the genetic testing is to, is to send the test when, when it's available and, and to, um, if there's not appropriate material for RNA testing and there is no driver, to consider another modality so that you don't miss a potential target um, in these important patients. So from the oncologist's point of view, I think the first thing it's important for every oncologist to do is to confirm with the um, endocrinologist or the nuclear medicine treating physician that the patients are no longer eligible for radioactive iodine therapy. I can't stress that enough because sometimes we have people who refer to us who are not necessarily knowledgeable about the treatment of thyroid cancer. They may only do diabetes and they send them to us right away. So it's important to make sure that you have an endocrinologist who is an expert in thyroid cancer and you can check the history with them and make sure that they agree that there's no longer an option to give radioactive iodine. Once the patient is confirmed to be RAI refractory, we also want to make sure that they need systemic therapy. And there is that period where endocrinology and oncology are co-managing, watching the tumors on either a six-month and if they start to grow a little quickly, a little bit more quickly, some of my patients will have surveillance at three months, just seeing if we can stretch out the period where they don't need any therapy and make sure that we're not going to miss uh, treatment that is required. And the things I'm looking for are rapidly um, progressing nodules, ones that are definitely over a centimeter, ones that might be in high risk areas. The pleura is dangerous, so one centimeter is all I need. Why? Because they're more likely to develop pleural effusions if I don't treat them more quickly. But then if they have something in the in the in the sort of in the lung that's not looking like it's going to obstruct something, I might be able to let that go to one to two centimeters. So we really want to kind of get a sense of when there is a need for systemic therapy. Make sure to start not too early, but also, most importantly, not too late. We make sure that we've sent somatic testing. So during surveillance, if we have fairly new, there, uh, fairly new samples, we'll make sure that somatic testing is sent so that while they don't need any systemic therapy, we actually can do the planning for what they're going to get. And then if there is no really good sample, at the time that they do progress, we pick um, a, hopefully a, a spot that might be amenable to biopsy. Up front, as I pointed out in my algorithm, we use a RET inhibitor for RET, um, RET mutations or RET 
actually up front in, in differentiate thyroid cancer, we're primarily using RET inhibitor for RET fusions, but of course you can also use them for RET mutations. But most importantly, also a TREC inhibitor for TREC fusion cancers in the first line setting. For all other for other all other patients who do not have um, a TREC or RET fusion, we use first line levatinib or serafinib, and second line cabozantinib. And then in the sort of like next line of therapy, we can add in a BRAF V600E inhibitor if the patient has that mutation and they need maybe a break from their VEGF receptor um, um, uh, systemic therapies. That concludes our case-based exploration of team management in thyroid cancer and the implications of tract fusion positive disease. I'd like to thank Jennifer and Stephen for being part of this discussion. I hope you found this activity informative and useful for your practice. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash QKA860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated.